All right, I'll count down just for you, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> All right, five, four, three, two. Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson. And, and we have... And then, that was like, har- like harmony. I know, it was great. Uh, and we have a special guest on the show today, a uh, friend of the show, Chad Gardner. Uh, hello, Chad. Hello, hello. Uh, we are really glad that you came on. So the way this this happened, Chad and I, we'll get to who Chad is in a second, but basically um, we're you know friends and former colleagues, and as happens sometimes, he sent me, you know, hey, this might be interesting for the show. Um, and I said, yeah, this is interesting for the show. You should come on and talk about it with us. Uh, and so we said, sure, why not? So we got Chad on, who is a super, super smart guy. I think you'll be glad. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think he's going to have really interesting stuff to say. It's going to be all Marxism the whole time. No, um, <laughs> probably will be some of that. But um, so, yeah, now we now no longer have two white guys explaining the world to you. We have three, you know, cis <laughs> white guys explaining the world to you. So what could what more could you ask for? Um, all right. So let's let's do this. Why don't you just give us uh, kind of briefly uh, who you are? Uh, whatever you want to tell us about yourself, if it's you know your story, if it's I don't know something of influence in your life or something interesting or it's something completely uninteresting, uh, tell <laughs> us a little bit about yourself, Chad. Sure. So um, uh, from Austin, Texas, uh, I went my my undergrad was in astronomy. I've always been kind of a science uh, geek, uh, but I grew up Catholic, and so the my, the intersection between science and religion was always pretty fascinating to me. In high school, I had this biology teacher who refused to teach us evolution because I thought it was originally in order to um, keep from stirring the stirring too many you know pots or debates or whatever. But found out later on that I'm pretty sure she just didn't believe in it herself, um, which was just unheard of to me because I was Catholic and the Catholic Church had accepted evolution for you know quite some time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that kind of I did a lot of reading from then on about this whole you know. Oh, there's people that think the world is 6,000 years old. That's interesting. Why do they think that? And then that kind of, you know, fast forward, whatever, 15 years, and I was in graduate school uh, <laughs> trying to answer those questions and, and doing some, that's how I met Thomas, uh, doing some work uh, on kind of the origins of the categories of science and of religion and how that might have kind of uh, percolated out of the Protestant Reformation and, and that kind of thing. Um, but then about halfway through, I decided that maybe it wasn't quite for me after all. Um, I, we found out that we were pregnant and I didn't, and the, the prospect of kind of, you know, living the adjunct life or, or chasing tenure positions for the next 15 years sounded scary. And I just wanted a paycheck. Um, so I stopped doing that and I taught high school physics for the last three years. Um, going to plan on doing that for at least a couple more years. Uh, but yeah, that's me. Yeah. So, that's- so it, it does strike me that a lot of, the questions we're trying to answer in graduate school um, are, you know, for a lot of people are kind of intimately connected to some experience in earlier in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I study heresy and orthodoxy, which is, you know, very relevant to a lot of my life growing up, uh, you know, as a Southern Baptist and, you know, saying things or, you know, asking questions and being told that was out of bounds or being asked, how can you call yourself a Christian and things like that. And that, you know, I think is part of what spurred me on to thinking about how these boundaries are created. And so 
all I talk about now is boundaries and classification and politics. So uh, we're going to talk about that probably some uh, this evening as well. Um, so, uh, well, Chad, we're really great, great to uh, to have you on. Um, I think we've got some really great stuff uh, for our conversation. Um, we we should say though it has now been we're recording this on Wednesday night, um, so it's now been almost four days, uh, three and a half days um, since the I don't really know the appropriate term for it atrocity or massacre uh, in Orlando, which is just um, I don't know about four hours south or so from where I am in Florida, um, and. I mean, I think everyone is everyone is heavy, right? Their hearts are heavy. Um, the details are still coming out. Um, information is still coming out about the about the shooter. Uh, so we're not going to get into all of that. But I know that when I woke up, and I mean, if, if you've listened to the show before, you, you've heard Sam and I talk about notifications on our phone, and this is probably the most notifications I've woken up to. Um, um, the sec- the close second would be when I was actually in San Diego uh, for SBL two years ago um, while there was a shooting on campus at Florida State and woke up to a lot of notifications early morning um, on the West Coast there. Uh, but woke up to just a, and just being inundated with notifications about what was going on in Orlando. And, you know, got sucked into the news, as I think a lot of other people did. And, I mean, the thing that sticks with me the most is hearing the late morning press conference where um, they announced that it was not 20, but 50 uh, victims. And hearing the audible gasp from the reporters, um, you know, and I don't know, your heart just sinks. Um, So... We people have a lot of healing left to do, um, and it will be done in a multitude of ways. Um, and it will not be pretty, and I don't think it should be pretty because you don't you don't heal from something like this uh, in a nice, neat manner. Uh, and we also have to figure out who we want to be as a people um, and where we want to go moving forward. Um, yeah. Regular listeners will probably have some indication of which way I lean, um, probably some indication of which way Sam leans on some of these issues, and we will talk about these more in the future. Um, but but we we could not do this show without uh, talking about that and saying that you know both of us, all three of us, um, are. I don't know. Okay, I'll speak for myself here. I'm not going to say that my thoughts and prayers are going out to. Uh, the victims and their and their families, even though they are, because I don't think that that does a whole lot. I've not been in a situation like this before, but I've been in situations of profound loss and uh, know that the things that people say are um, rarely helpful. And so I'm not going to try to say anything that will be helpful. But um, but you know we we feel we are feeling this as well. Uh, we are experiencing the pain, though not nearly to the degree that other people are. Um, and we want to see things get better because we don't want to see this happen again. Um, so I don't really know a good way to transition out of that. 
If we were <laughs> well, if we were on live TV, was, we would you know go silent with the picture <laughs> and fade to commercial, and that would be kind of our out. Right. I, I mean, I'll just throw in that you know it has to do with with kind of the general scope of what I think we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. With, you know, culture and interpretation and and sort of the the place of narrative uh, in these discussions. Um, so in in the immediate aftermath of, of all of this, like Sunday morning, I, I was thinking, okay, is this going to going to be, you know, about the LGBTQ community and the violence that continually, you know, is, is sort of thrust upon them, or is this going to be about gun control, or is this going to be about, you know, quote Muslim extremists or radical Islam? And we've seen different groups and people try to, you know, parlay their own wants on, onto that and, and trying, you know, you have Donald Trump trying to do one thing with the narrative. You have, uh, you know, progressive groups trying to do something. You have kind of moderate groups trying to say something. Uh, you have the Senate Democrats today doing a, a filibuster. That was a surprise, uh, which, which was actually, I think, nice to see mm-hmm. uh, somebody standing up and saying, no, it's, right. you know, thoughts and prayers are great. Moments of silence are wonderful. But actually, they're not doing anything. And it's time that we stand up and, and we do something because this is a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and the filibuster should be held for these types of situations where there's an impasse and, and nothing better can come of it. So here we're, we're going to default to that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think what you said, Thomas, about, you know, this, this kind of being a, a crucible point for us in terms of our country and, and what kind of country we want to be, you know, let alone the, the election in the fall. Um, I, I think it, it feels very much on, on a national level, how it felt here in South Carolina after the Dylan roof, um, right. Mother massacre, Emanuel, yeah. you know, last year at Emmanuel. Yeah. Last June, I was in Dallas for its, uh, cooperative Baptist fellowship general assembly and yeah, they, all that news broke. Um, but in South Carolina, for a good month or two months, it felt you kind of had this palpable feeling of something has to change. And for us, that meant taking down the Confederate flag from the state house grounds. And that seemed silly. And of course, you know, that, that should have been gone a long time ago. But it was a big deal for people in South Carolina to, to, get a, to get that symbol out of their heads as something that represents history and represents our, you know, our tradition and our heritage. And saying, no, no, we're not going to stand behind that anymore because of this event. So, I don't know. To me, it kind of feels like Orlando's maybe something like a crucible or something like a, a focus event that we say, you know what? People don't really need to have, you know, assault weapons and, and assault rifles uh, on, on the streets. And, and if you're on the terrorist watch list, maybe you shouldn't be able to go into a gun shop and buy handguns and AR-15s. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know what the I don't know what the immediate policy solution is. Um, there are people that get paid a lot more money than I do to figure that out. Um, are, you, are you saying that's above your pay grade? That's above my pay grade. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, right? And it's what, what President Obama said. I think you know he's been on fire lately. But you know, he said he's pissed off. He was very angry. He said, you know, stop, um, you know, saying we need to be tough on terrorism actually be tough on terrorism so you know we'll we'll see what happens and and hopefully that doesn't look like you know policy in the past that has just created more terrorists right like killing innocent people um you know because they happen to be brown and muslim and not live in this country um so 
Anyway, but I do th- I do think you're right, Sandra. This actually ties in well to this conversation that you know we've kind of been leading up to, uh, which is kind of the culture war, right? And so so the piece that that Chad sent me was um, this piece that David Brooks wrote in the New York Times. Let's have a better culture war. Um, and Brooks is an interesting writer. You know, some a lot of times I read him and I'm just like, he's completely crazy. And he wrote a piece this week that was like, oh, you know, the ancient Greeks had three words for love. And he like lists them out in the first sentence. And one of them is Latin, not Greek. And <laughs> two of them don't have anything to do with love. So, okay, like that's, yeah, uh, I, I can't read it anymore. Um, but every now and then, right, he gives you something to kind of think about. And I do think that this is an interesting intersection uh, you know, with the culture wars. You know, what happened in Orlando and, and the narrative following that and the narrative that's still continuously being constructed and is still a site of contestation, um, you know, kind of ties in really, really well um, with the culture wars and kind of how people are looking at culture wars as well. So I don't know if you want to jump in here, Chad, and kind of um, give us some of maybe your initial thoughts um, about the Brooks piece, and then we'll just we'll go wherever uh, wherever the conversation leads us. Sure. Um off the top of my head, like it was interesting what Sam was just saying about taking down the Confederate flag. Um, and you know, it, it was silly. It was a symbol, but at the same time, you know, it was kind of giving up a piece of the tradition and thinking most my wife's been bless her soul has been arguing with people for three days straight about gun control and I on Facebook. And I've just, I've just haven't done any of that this time because it makes me too angry. Um, but she has this friend from high school who's a libertarian and um, he's, he's an intelligent guy and he's, he's well-spoken. And so they, they, they often get in these kind of battles back and forth uh, and they both you know, appreciate the ability to have for the most part, a calm conversation about these kind of opposing issues. But um, it's weird. She, she and I were talking about it afterwards and it was, it was interesting to me about, about how kind of the second amendment um, has become a, uh, itself almost kind of a symbol for things like uh, a tradition between, you know, my grandpappy had a gun and his grandpappy had a gun. And, you know, this is what we are. And this is, this is a part of, you know, an intricate part of, of, of our family. And, 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 you know, the government's trying to take this away and it's become kind of like a stand in for all these other things. Um, and so it's, it's strikes me as, um, I don't know. The fact that David Brooks is calling for kind of like a, a, a new kind of, traditionalism he says um let me find the quote that you had uh, i'll get it in a second but uh he wants something he wants something uh you know more more communal less uh he had another yeah piece, yeah, yeah yeah he had okay, another piece here, recently here, about you know like the yeah okay yeah go sorry yeah, so the larger culture itself has become morally empty and therefore marked by fragmentation, distrust, and power-mongering. The larger culture itself needs to be revived in four distinct ways. We need to be more communal in an age that's overly individualistic. We need to be more morally minded in an age that's over, overly utilitarian. We need to be more spiritually literate in an age that's overly materialistic. And we need to be more emotionally intelligent in an age that is overly cognitive. Yeah. I don't know. It's It's... It's hard to exactly articulate. It's 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 interesting to me that um, that mm, okay, I'm kind of <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, I mean, 
the end of that end of that quote about being cognitive you know that that's such a a hard concept i think for us to to wrap our heads around and be, be cognitive about being cognitive but <laughs> right. you know that the the idea that as a country you know we start looking at symbols in a way that's respectful not just of our own beliefs but also of the people around us and that's been something that's not completely uh you know part of the american experience um you know we, we had the commies we had the, the krauts we had the spanish we had either the rebels or the or the yankees and you know, on and on and on, all the way back to our founding. You know, like we were a country that was founded out of conflict. And our culture is one that's always kind of cast in a us versus them mindset, you know, right from the very beginning. Um, so for us to, to move from that into something that's a little more, okay, well, I, you know, I like the Confederate flag because my great, 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 great grandfather fought in the Civil War for Alabama. But what does that mean to me today? And how does that reflect upon you know, the, the kind of society where I want to be or, or, you know, yes, I think we should be able to have shotguns uh, and, and not have gun control because of what I do. But how do I extend that belief into kind of a wider argument? You know, kind of that, that I, I think that idea for a conscious culture that, that Brooks is seemingly uh, pointing to here. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, a couple of things. You know, the, the first thing is that I mean, you call for a new culture war because you're losing the current one, right? <laughs> I mean, and that that to me just seems, yeah. just seems really simple, right? right? And so, the, in right. the beginning of the quote that I that I read a minute ago, it says you know the larger culture itself has become morally empty. Well, I mean, maybe the larger culture just doesn't happen to share your particular set of morals, right? Maybe the larger culture has said you don't get to define what counts as morality for me. Um, you know, a lot of people would actually say we become. Um, more morally full or secure or whatever you want to call it um, because now like we don't own people uh, generally right now we you know let ideally right women have the same rights as men right we're working toward all of these things right um, we're you can marry whomever you happen to love um, regardless of whatever gender you identify with, right? We're kind of, in a lot of ways, ways we're kind of moving in what some people would think is the right direction and not that we've, you know, lost our morals or something like that. Um, and so the whole premise strikes me as interesting, right? As many things in the show do, um, because right, you only want a new type of battle, a new type of war if you're losing the current one. Yeah, the diagnosis is interesting too. Like it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's what you always kind of hear, you know, the, um, you know, the world in that kind of like religious sense is, you know, the, we are not of this world, and and the world is the thing that is a corrupted the thing that we're supposed to be kind of, you know, shuffling shuffling off our mortal coil mortal coils, and and uh, so I mean, I don't know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not super original in that sense because it really is just, um. It really is in the <clears throat> sorry. Um, it's, it's kind of the same old, same old in that in that sense. Right. So in a sorry. way, right. So yes, yeah, so what you're saying is in a way he's calling for a new war, but he but he's making the same argument, 
right? And he's calling for a new traditionalism, right? Which is okay, you're just wrapping up traditionalism and like a different, you know, holiday dress or something. It's not, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so now uh, you, you know, you have, you have a lot of thoughts that you put down in, um, you know, in the, in the show notes, Um, you know, but where he's talking about this kind of new traditionalism, right. And recognizing that we're not primarily physical creatures, which Mm -hmm. is a a really interesting uh, idea that, you know, we maybe should not necessarily kind of breeze past, (laughs) <laughs> right what do you mean right so right so his thing is like there's you're right there's a ghost in the machine we have souls and like if we recognize that people have souls then that would you know necessarily lead us to certain conclusions mm-hmm. and th- like that to me is where a lot of the hang-up is one this idea that that we have souls like whether i happen to think that or not is I mean, it's a pretty big step to take, right? And to just assume that everyone should agree with you on that. Right. I don't like, like we have consciousness. And because of that, I think, you know, that like makes us at least in, to some degree want to feel like we're more special. Right. And this is what some of your notes were getting at. Um, mm-hmm. Right. That, that we're kind of something precious or sacred, you know, special, special snowflake, as a friend of mine says, like there's something more to us. And, and there, right. and there very well may be, but you know, if, if that's his premise, that's an interesting place to start. And then to say that, well, because of this, we're necessarily going to end up here. I think also a lot of other people would say, well, no, I, I would agree with your premise, but I think it means that we end up somewhere else. Right. And where's he drawing that from? I mean, it's, it's not really a biblical <laughs> you know, viewpoint when he says, if we talked as if people had souls, then we'd have a thick view of what is at stake in everyday activities. The soul can be elevated and degraded at every second, even when you're not, uh, even when you're alone, not hurting anyone. Each thought or act etches a new line into the core piece of oneself. I, I mean, yes, there, there's a rich history of asceticism and, and Gnosticism and, and Christianity, um, and in all religions, I guess. But the idea of uh, someone being worth something because they have this. Kind of like you said, Thomas, inner ghost or this you know soul inside of the the, the mortal shell of themselves, and and that's that's what should you know bound us all together in, in this notion of new traditionalism or this, as he says, uh, uh, a culture that's uh, over politicized and under moralized. Um, that's that's really fascinating that we have this cultural ideal of morality being shaped around the concept of of having a soul. Yeah. Because you know that, that's that's not really <laughs> Judeo-Christian in in the Orthodox sense, at least. It's, I mean, I, I hear this a lot too when people start talking, kind of coming back to the the rights thing with like the Second Amendment. You know, who, where does the the right to own a firearm come from? And there's this sense, and I think in the broader culture, that in order for something to be like capital T true, it must be somehow immutable, or it must you know come from yeah. come from above, or come from outside of of our society, you know, so the second amendment, you know, maybe protects that right, but it doesn't grant that right only, you know, God gave me the right to own a gun or something. Right. What, what was Huckabee's book? God, guns, grits, and something. <laughs> I don't know. Case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But like, so, you know, the, the, I don't know. And the funny thing too, is like back to what you said, it's like, there's a, there's a long to rich history about, 
the both the evolution of rights themselves, but also about the the idea of the soul and what happens after you die, and blah blah blah. And in, so, in order to, to thinking that in order the only way that we can have kind of a you know a a better society is if we start treating each other as if we had souls. Kind of erases the entire history of the whole whole evolution of that idea itself i mean i don't know it's so in the in the show notes i talk about how i've always been fascinated that in order for something to be truly um you know precious or sacred it also has to be inexplicable um there's this there's this kind of notion that if you can you know explain something if you can write an equation that describes a situation there's like a you know perfect little mathematical mathematical model for your situation then all of a sudden that means that um, it must be completely devoid of anything that has to do with, you know, meaning or specialness or, or, or something like that. And it's, you know, if, if it makes it, you know, just, I think there's the scene in, um, finding Neverland that I always think about where, uh, there are like kids like playing in the park and Johnny Depp, who's, you know, the, the guy who's, uh, writing Peter Pan. They're pretending that the dog is a bear, and the little the little snot nosed kid is like, "What are you talking about? It's just the dog." And he goes off on this kind of uh, little speech about the word "just," you know, like mm-hmm. um, as if it's this totally reductive thing that takes away all the magic out of the world. Um, and I think that I don't know that, that comes into play a lot of this. That if we if we, if we are you know just animals, oh, this is another scene. Or sorry, I had I taught this at the very end of my class. I teach physics. In high school, at the very end of my class this year, um, you have all this kind of four weeks of dead space after the AP test, um, <laughs> right. which is like you kind of have to figure out what to do with. And so I, I, I taught this mini version of this science and film class that I taught at, at FSU. So we watched a couple films. We watched Inherit the Wind, um, the classic kind of Scopes Monkey Trial movie with like Spencer Tracy and yeah. and all these people. And there's a. Um, there's a quote in there that same thing. It's like, you know, I tell you sons and daughters or whatever, you know, if man is a beast or descended from the beast, then he must remain a beast. And it's like, with, you know, the idea that we are totally just, uh, that there can't be any, you know, specialness in the natural world. Um, so it has to come from somewhere else. But again, that, you know, back to the kind of the labeling and the, and the politicizing of all this, uh, it ignores the fact that all of these, Things are, you know, social constructions that take all this this social work and this, uh, you know, and then, um, actual work, right, to create, right. Um, which is where, you know, then, then they get erased and then all of a sudden you have this magical thing that it's the soul and so therefore we should be nice to each other. Yeah, so um, uh, the – Well, I mean, let me, let me just throw this in real quick. Uh, along those lines, Chad, I mean, you're a – a physics teacher. So for me, what I, what I immediately think of when people talk about the need for something like a soul or, or something that's intrinsically platonic in us that, that, you know, is better than this material world and the demiurge that created it. The idea of, uh, for me, like quantum mechanics starts creeping in and it's like, well, you know, you do realize like the physical world is pretty freaking amazing and we don't understand, right. you know, one, one, you know, trillionth of right, what's yeah. going on the here. Cosmos. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and when we start taking into account things like, you know, the double slit experiment and, and how the observer helps determine an experiment, like that's pretty freaking cool. And and why don't we take that into account 
and say, you know what, this this physicality stuff is pretty interesting and it's not bad. Mm-hmm. And yes, when we say, oh, we're you know we're human animals and we're going to go shoot up a nightclub because we're animals, well, it's not because we're animals. That's because you know uh, these other variables that have nothing to do with you know just being a physical being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there's this constant human urge or need at, at a surface level to escape the physical world and go into kind of this, you know, theoretically pure platonic world. But when you stop and look and think about, you know, the physical world, it's a pretty amazing place. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I just get, I get really agitated, especially by people like this who are, you know, quote, thought leaders uh, with David mm-hmm. Brooks, you know, kind of throwing out this cultural Gnosticism that is dangerous. I mean, it's very, very dangerous. And, and it, it leads people in the pews, especially to say, well, yeah, you know, we're not of this world and we're going to translate, um, you know, th- this word in, in Second Peter, instead of, you know, person that's beside the house, we're going to say resident alien. And, you know, mm. um, you know, this is not my home and I'm, I'm waiting for the rapture so I can float up to heaven. That's that uh, to me, that just seems like it's, it's, we're short shrifting both, you know, the physicality of, of, of the universe, which is again, pretty amazing. And the physicality of being a human, which allows us to, uh, you know, be who we are. Well, you know, with uh, I don't know. Now, to be fair, um, we are in a particular place of leisure and privilege that allows us to entertain those thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. how great it is to be a physical human in this amazing physical universe, which yeah, sure, which sure, are you know not thoughts that, um, you know, a regular day laborer in first century Palestine probably had right they're worried about what a lot of people today right 21st century day laborers worried about um how am i gonna get enough money to feed my family tonight um but you know tied to that i'm thinking back on this trip that i when i went um i was in israel uh back in 2008 it was um in egypt and jordan so kind of before the uh, arab spring and all that and it was it was just fantastic but we're we're at um uh let's see capernaum and there's a synagogue there, uh, right? In the, it's the white synagogue that's there. I think is what they call it, fourth century synagogue in Capernaum, I believe. No, or was it? Yeah, it was Capernaum. Not Caesarea. It was Capernaum. And everybody's like ooing and aahing over the synagogue, which is nice. And they're kind of thinking all these, I don't know, like nice religious spiritual thoughts, like, hey, like this is kind of like a synagogue Jesus might have hung out in, except <laughs> there weren't no synagogues in Galilee. Not like that. <laughs> right. But but I, right I turn around, right, right um, from essentially what would be like the porch of the synagogue, and I mean, literally right there, you could reach out and touch almost the houses of this fishing village. And I could have, you know, I could have thrown a rock across the entire area of the houses, but, you know, you could have, you know, hundreds of people could have lived there. Very tight-knit, very close. And I'm sitting there thinking about what was it like to be a fisherman, right? Or a fisherwoman, right? But probably fisherman, right? We know how the society was. Um, right, but it, so I'm thinking about the people that lived in this fishing village. There, you know, that to me was a much more meaningful experience than thinking about kind of a shared humanity. Not because we like all have souls and something like that, but because like they were physically laboring and living and, and just, you know, trying to be the best they could for the people around them and having, you know, difficulties and drama and stress just like we do and some ups and some downs experiencing great joy and great loss that to me was a much more meaningful experience um and that's always my problem with with people that want to 
you know, focus on the soul or, or focus on kind of an ahistorical, like, well, this is where Jesus walked, you know, kind of a mindset. Um, I mean, the Gospels over and over reiterate Jesus's humanity, you know, on so many levels. But, you know, Joseph was a, a technet, you know, he, he worked with his hands, <laughs> you know, it, he wasn't making fine carpentry for, for someone's kitchen. You know, he was out there lifting up stones and rocks and that kind of thing. Um, and, and the idea that we separate our religion or here with Brooks, you know, we separate our, our morality from that physicality. And yes, I'm saying this from a place of privilege as I sit here in front of a multi-thousand dollar, you know, desktop of, <laughs> right. uh, you know, silicon screens and all kind of stuff. But when we separate our notions of humanity from that, that gets insanely dangerous. Um, and, and I'm sure David Brooks makes a lot more money than me, so I can say he's speaking from even more privileged than I'm speaking from. Um, anyway, I don't know. I, I, I think it's fascinating from a kind of a cultural Gnosticism point of view to, to see this pop up here and now after after Orlando. Well, this was before Orlando, but still, like the, this idea of, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that being a, a way to find a new traditionalism, as if that's something that we need to find or, or we need to you know, recover from the past, make America great again. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Right. Um, right. But, and again, it's, it's these, and this is what, and I wrote a little bit about this this week and kind of the aftermath of Orlando and kind of how it's being classified and, and the struggle over that. And, you know, obviously Sam and I talked a lot about it off the air um, over this past week. And Chad and I have had a lot of conversations about this too, right? These, this is a struggle, right? Over who, who gets to have the power to make these decisions, right? About what counts mm-hmm. as morality, what counts as a, a culture that has not become, you know, bad, has not gone down the drain, so to speak, right? Because I think there are a lot of great things about, you know, our culture now. I think there are plenty of things that could be way better. Um, so, but right, I'm not in a place of power to kind of make that determination, right? And so there's this kind of constant struggle over who gets to win the narrative, right? And I mean, what I wrote this week basically was uh, win the words and change the world, hmm. which I was just a turn of phrase I was particularly proud of. I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> Might not be that good, but I thought it was pretty good. But, you know, I, I was just trying to get it, you know, in a you know succinct manner. Um, kind of how all this plays out and the importance of language, which we've talked about, you know, some on the show here um, is interesting because, it, you know, how it um, intersects with all these other issues. Right. You know, it's not just these kind of larger cultural wars, but, um, you know, how do we uh, respond to and deal with what happened in Orlando? Right. People are trying to give us the language to use uh, to to understand the world post Orlando. And the question is, who's going to win that right for us? It was interesting. I think I think you were tweeting about this earlier this week, but um, about yeah, you, know, you see Obama's. I can't, I can't remember if it was in the original. I think it was later on in like a press conference when he was saying um, he was kind of responding to you know Trump, who was uh, complaining that he that Obama won't use the word radical Islam. And Obama was just—he yep. finally got it fed up. He said, "Like changing, changing the name isn't going to change anything." Uh, right. It's not, it's it's not like, some like magic pixie dust that all of a sudden right. we just win this war against terrorism. Yeah. So there's this there's this funny like 
there's funny like tension there between yeah winning winning the words can win the world but at the same time like um it's always important to kind of pull back that curtain i think you know and to and to realize that the words that we use while they themselves you know like they they is through them that we can construct the world and it's through them that we try to understand and therefore control the world um in the end it's also like you know the words themselves are are products of our own of our own you know construction and 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 conflict and and struggle and it's important to both to like to to see the power of those words but also to kind of see that they only have that power because we're kind of giving it to them does that make sense Yes, absolutely. I would agree completely, and I think Bourdieu would too. <laughs> and that's really what matters. And Bruce Lincoln, of course, too. And got a great book on Bruce. Anyway, well, and and what do you guys think about this idea that our culture somehow is more, I guess, radically individualistic or something like that? You know, and and it's these lone wolves and these, um, I don't know that 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 sense of individualism that that we hold up here in in the United States, um. I don't know. But, like it's a. I mean, I I see Brooks's point on some level, and I and I kind of I sympathize with his with his position because part of me feels like that one of the things that uh, our society should be, you know, working on is kind of getting back to more of like a local, uh, you know, local economy, local sense of of of, of neighborhood and and ownership yeah, of place, definitely. right? Um, but and 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 the way that we are now has a lot to do, I think with, you know, the fact that we try to define ourselves by buying certain, whatever, you know, shoes and cars and, and we become, we, we define ourselves by these kind of consumer, consumeristic notions. And so that's, that inherently is kind of like an individual thing. I bought this, this is me. This is how I present myself to the world. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I don't think the answer is, um, you know, just recognizing the dignity of your fellow humans the way that Brooks is kind of kind of saying, oh, all we need to do is talk about souls and we'll be okay. Like, so I'm sympathetic to his, his position, but I don't really know like what, you know, the remedy is. I've often said that I think that community gardens are really the only thing that's going to end up saving the planet after all, but that's, you know, more my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think too, like, I mean, part of what, stuck out to me here this kind of idea that we need to be more communal in an age that's overly individualistic just kind of rubbed me the wrong way because i don't know i just this conversation sam and i have a lot of a lot we're having it with somebody else another um friend of the you know friend of the show listener um on twitter this week about uh and not this person was doing this but a lot of people do kind of blame the internet Right. Like this mm-hmm. is our problem. Social media is like the problem. If we could just like mm-hmm. give rid of that, we'd all be OK, which is just I mean, it's it's asinine. Right. It's, it's just a completely elementary understanding of the world and how how the world works as if things were all hunky dory before Al Gore invented <laughs> the Internet. This um, is a great picture. That, I don't know if you've seen it where it's like any they show a picture on the left side of it's like a meme, I think, where everyone's on their phone, like no one's paying attention to each other. And it's like. And everyone's isolated in their own little world, right? And it says, if only it was like 50 years ago. And it shows like yes. all these guys lined up on the train just reading the newspaper. Every single one of them reading the newspaper. <laughs> exactly. But the other thing that – so all right, so there's nothing new about kind of that. But it also strikes me that that 
some people have found communities because of the internet that they never would have found beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people that have been ostracized from their physical communities, their religious communities, their familial communities, they have found communities digitally that, um, in, in, I think in a lot of cases have saved people's lives. And to just kind of throw that away is like, oh, it's, it's individualistic because you're on a phone as opposed to like talking in person. And I'm all about like getting together in person, but, but I just understand what that what it's meant for me and the community that I have online. Um, but also kn- what I know it's meant for other people. Right. I mean, a lot of, yeah. especially you know if you're in, in places where you're not surrounded, you're surrounded by people who who you don't you've grown away from and you don't identify with anymore. Like in the old days, you just kind of like you know shut your mouth and put your head down and, and went on with your life and you know felt out of place for the next twenty years. But now you have a there, there there's a, this great resource out there that. You know, you know, no matter who you are, you're not alone, right? Yeah. Well, and, and not just that in, in terms of individualism, but we're seeing thing we're seeing the internet. I mean, or the web, not the internet, break up so many institutions that we once held as mm-hmm. you know uh, unshakable. I mean, whether it's the church or mm-hmm. I mean, government. Uh, or, you know, Donald Trump tweeting and having that instant access to people. Uh, I, I was watching CNN today, and they were joking like, "Oh, we can't wait until Donald Trump, you know, uh, responds to this on Twitter." And it, they're joking, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's his outlet. That's his press corps. Um, you know, or, or whether it's it's down to things like banking and, and how we think about finances, or how we do this, or how we do that. Um, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right. And you know, we we blame newspapers for this. We blame radio for this. We blame TV for this. We blame the printing press for this. And we had a, a schism in Christianity over the printing press. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, well, we don't want these Bibles and vernacular and we, we got to put a put a lid on that. Um, same thing is happening now. And, and we're, we're getting to this point where things that we thought were unshakable or, or rapidly sort of declining in stature, uh, whether it's political parties or, or, you know, large church memberships or whatever – and that that threatens people who aren't in that generation that are following or, or participating in you know whatever's happening. So you know you don't have a whole lot of baby boomers on Snapchat, right. you know. And, and it's like, well, why would anyone want to post a picture of themselves, you know, puking unicorn <laughs> rainbows? But you know that that means something to a lot of people in our culture. Um, and as someone you know who's kind of caught in between those two worlds, I you know I totally get both sides. Uh, but for me, my struggle is continually to say like, Hey, you know, you're 37 years old, Sam, and there are people who are 24 who are changing the world and you've got to get out of their way and listen to what they're doing. Cause you know, some pretty cool stuff going on. Um, and it, it it's threatening, you know, cause you, again, as we talk about every week, you, you realize the universe is out to get you once you get to a certain age and you've done what you're going to do. You've had your children, you've contributed to the universe and now you're just taking up space and having mass. Um, and, and you're just producing, you know, carbon footprints and fossil fuel emissions and the universe is ready for you to move on. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a hard thing to do because traditionally we've, we've put power in the hands in our country, at least, uh, you know, and white men who are 60 and above. Um, I don't know. I, I think as we continue to transition in our society, you know, we can't fall prey to this idea of the progressive curve where, you know, things are going to get better because we're getting more liberal, you know, that, that sort of early 20th century ideal of, of you know, whatever, the, the social gospel, um, which I love. But, you know, 
and but also we, we can't fall prey to the idea that just because you've been on the earth for 60 years, you know what's best for everyone. Um, that might have worked in a, in a broadcast age, but we're not in a broadcast age anymore. And if you look back, I mean, social media was pretty freaking popular with the Romans, <laughs> you know. So um, we're, we're, we're recovering from our broadcast media age uh, where we were susceptible to this idea of, of um, you know, uh, what's his name? CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. Yeah. Dan Rather. Uh, giving us, you know, that that news every night, whereas, you know, before and and now after we get our news, we get our information, we get our our ability to create content from from different sources. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think it's going to be an interesting few decades of cultural cleansing here in terms of cultural cleansing passes. is probably not the best phrase to use. <laughs> I'm trying to be Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked up Marxist terms to try to impress Chad, nice, but nice. clearly that was cultural cleansing. That's what you came up with. <laughs> you know, like a little red book. or something. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that much of a Marxist. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I think uh, I think Trumpism is. is kind of that that last grasp at saying no no the, you know this isn't how our country is supposed to go we're supposed to follow this trajectory we're not supposed to do this um you know that that black muslim president that we had was leading us down the wrong path and he's the antichrist but if we just listen to donald trump the white businessman who inherited a lot of money from his father who really hasn't done much with his life except for have a lot of wives and and you know, he's not really actually that good of a business person, but he was on TV, so he knows what to do. So let's listen to him. You know, it's, it's kind of that last grasp at the the ruling, but if, I, I think hegemonic, uh, yeah. you know, white male leadership idea of the 20th century. It's, not to go, all to go. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right, though. I, I it, it it does feel to me, and then that's <clears throat> I think it goes back to this. You only want a new culture war if you're losing the current one, right? And I think a lot of people know that they are they've they've lost, right? Um, they see the writing on the wall, um, and and I think that there there is to a large degree kind of last you know gasps at holding on to something, and and it seems to be that that those who are in power and about to lose power are sometimes the last to realize. Yeah, and it's something we talk about on a lot of these shows is, you know, every generation thinks that it's the best generation or, or the last great generation. And these young people are coming in and screwing things up. And if only we can turn them around or help them find Jesus or help them find capitalism or help them find whatever. Then Wait, we can aren't those the same the thing? <laughs> well, yeah, in most, in most circles here in the United States, um, which is – isn't that freaking weird? It's this funny tension between like – is it really just another instantiation of, oh, kids these days, get off my lawn? Um, yeah. But at the same time, yeah. like the inter- I feel like the internet has un- like, kind of fundamentally changed things. Like, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a genie that's different than, yeah. you know, than the printing press was even. You know what I mean? It's, it's, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's this huge like, amplifier. Uh, y'all talked a lot more about like, tech and internet than I do. I, don't, I haven't read a lot about this kind of stuff, but just thinking just now, it's interesting to me that kind of populism is on the rise all across kind of the, you know, the industrialized world. Like you had that right wing populist guy almost get elected in Denmark. I don't remember. Where was it? You know what I'm talking about? 
Yes, yeah, I do. I think that was it. Yeah, because that was, uh, cause we also saw it was kind of the right nationalist party almost come to power mm-hmm. in France, but that was in Austria. Yeah, yeah, and then in the, and then with the with the rise of Trump here, it's like um, you know it kind of amplifies both sides and 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 kind of all of the you know the levels of society that have been generally you know the ones just sitting there kind of digesting the news or listening to Dan Rather now have a way to you know, to speak and to be organized. And so it's kind of on, on both sides, it's, it's, uh, increasing, but you know, the average choice, the average Trump supporter is something like, I can't remember what this is, like median income of $80,000 a year. And it's like a 60 year old white guy or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but, yeah. um, so I definitely think there's, you know, the generational issues there, but it's, it's, so it's I, interesting so to I, me. Yeah, I think you're right. Right. I mean, obviously the printing press fundamentally altered the world, right? I don't, I don't think there's, any right, other right. way to think about it than that, and I, and I, <laughs> what? I, I would agree with okay, that. Yeah, <laughs> I still think it. I still think it's the, you know, that you know, kind of the the written word and and the codex in particular, right? Having pages and not scrolls mm-hmm. is still one of humanity's greatest technological achievements. Um, but but I think you're right that that the internet has fundamentally changed the world. It is still just a tool, like other things are. But but in a way, the printing press could not be a democratized democratizing mm-hmm. tool, right? right? It was still held in the hands of the elite, right? The literate and and particularly those you know we're talking about you know, whether the Bible could be printed in the vernacular, et cetera. So not even just those that could read, but those that could read Latin or or whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was still kind of a tool of the elite, and and the internet to some degree is right. I mean, it's getting it's it's much more democratizing of a platform than I think we've ever seen before. We still have some issues, particularly um, I think in you know South America and Africa and in poor communities uh, in the quote unquote developed world, you know, um, US, Europe and things like that, that still don't have access to the internet. And I do think but we're ever closer. Cool. I, right. Right. We just saw the, the um, kind of net neutrality battle that we, uh, I would like to think that we won, right? So, um, <laughs> understanding it as a utility, and I think we're moving closer to uh, a day where it is kind of understood as something that everyone should just be guaranteed access to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a different kind of platform that that provides, to some degree, the most level playing field we've ever had. But that that to say, we are at the very beginning of this. Yes, right. right. You know, I mean. I remember 1993 was the first time I saw a web page, and the web actually came online in 1993. Um, you know, so if you count backwards, we're not that far removed from the you know the launch of the web. Uh, the internet's been around since 1967, 69, depending on how you, how you work that. Um, but in terms of people, you know, actively coming together and 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 socializing and and creating ideas and creating things on on the web. We are still at a very, very early age, and we're seeing companies, you know, from Facebook to Google to Apple trying to compete to corral that, you know, and then put people into their silos. Yes, um, yes. It, there, there is definitely a power struggle that is going on that will continue. Yeah, and, and then we see the Snowden releases where we realize, okay, the government really cares a lot about how we use our mobile devices because, as the Facebook executive said uh, at a women's summit uh, that Forbes covered yeah. – Yesterday, you know, uh, within five years, Facebook will be mostly mobile. And that's especially true in the developing world where companies like Google and Facebook are, are 
doing things like launching balloons and launching drones to try to you know expand uh, the the reach of the web to very rural communities that don't get served by you know copper lines or broadband lines uh, and offering services to you know these communities but you you get the the facebook curated experience or you get the the google curated you know web and that's you know for me that that makes me want to pull my hair out because i'm you know an old school guy who wants to have the the free web and the open web and i remember how exciting it was but I grew up in the age of Prodigy and Comcast where you couldn't – or not Comcast, uh, CompuServe, where you couldn't email someone from you know, your Prodigy account if they were on CompuServe. Right. <laughs> you know, so, and now we're at this different level, but we're, we're still trying to figure this out. Just like uh, in the early days with movable type on the printing press, uh, there were dealers who were selling um, you know, certain blocks of movable type. That wouldn't fit into certain printing presses. If you know, so if you had the Gutenberg printing press, it wouldn't fit into the Oshberg printing press. You know, and you had to figure out which movable type you wanted to use and, and buy your printing press. Uh, so, you know, when when I complain about iMessage not being available on Android, you know, it's the same kind of idea. Um, and, and let alone thinking about, okay, well, I, I have access to anything I really want to look up, and if there's for God forbid something blocked which there's not, um, you know, I could always, you know, go through a VPN that I have installed on my computer and I can, you know, go through and, and uh, pop up and, and watch the BBC player from London and, and watch my Doctor Who without, you know, much, uh, much trouble other than clicking two buttons. Um, You'd be amazed so, yeah. at my high school students' understandings of VPNs and proxy servers. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to work for IT at a school. Oh. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they're like, well, you know, we can just put them through our filter. And I was like, yeah, have you heard of VPN? Because it even works on iPads. It's not hard to break. Um, but but that's cool. I mean, that's mm. really – I think that's fucking awesome that high school kids are out there experimenting with VPNs and figuring out how to make this stuff work. And that's that's something we've lost from the MySpace era of the web. <laughs> you know, like there was something yeah, beautiful true. about – ugly myspace sites because people are getting their hands dirty with html and css <laughs> you know now facebook everything looks the same um you know or snapchat or whatever you know it's all kind of a similar experience but that that personal expression you had available uh back in the myspace era which is 10 years ago but still um it's like cars too right like you know you can't just get in there and do all your work on your car anymore you have to take it somewhere exactly which is why i drive a 10 year old truck and i will never drive a truck past 2004 because i love working on my automobiles and uh my wife drives a a computerized car now and it's really cool and i love it but no for me personally i want to i want to change my oil and i want to be able Mm -hmm. to not get a notification like my wife got one the other day that said uh your um your power management system uh, has a, has an issue. Take it to a dealer immediately. You'll still be able to drive the car for the next three days. <laughs> I was like, what oh the hell gosh. is that? <laughs> you know, like what a brave new world we're in uh, where you can't just, you know, fix your own car. But uh, that, that stuff gets me really worked up because I think, you know, we, the web is something that can be so transformative. And, and I'm trying not to be the old white man, who says, no, no, you know, we, we had the free web and, you know, this is how it should be. We should all be blogging, get off Facebook, um, <laughs> even though I really feel that way. <laughs> but whatever this thing becomes, I know hopefully it's going to be something that's a positive, transformative experience for humanity, just just like the printing press was. And the printing press went through uh, the, the same types of 
you know, patent fights and, and fights over user experience and, and who's got the best movable type keyboards and all that stuff that we're doing now with Android and iOS and Facebook or Google or whatever. But um, it, it's hard when you when you get so short-sighted and, and you want to see the big picture, but you can't. See, it strikes to me like the, what Brooks is trying to get at is less a problem with, you know, internet and maybe detachment. And it's more of a problem with like the fact that, you know, it's, and this has been true, you know, whatever, quote unquote forever is that it's, it's the, it's the licentious things that everyone wants to click on. Right. It's, it's, it's the thing is that's the shortest and the sweetest and the sexiest are the things that sells and the things that gets the clicks and the, and the page visits. And, and so platforms like Twitter and Facebook have, you know, amplified the ability of humans to, to find those things and, and disseminate those things. But it's not like that's something new. You know, I mean, right. they had like, <laughs> like, let's talk Pompeii for a second, right? Yeah. And all the pornography that we found there and all the faces that we found from the ancient world with, yeah. you know, basically, you know, women using dildos and multiple dildos and multiple partners, right? I mean, like, it's not like this stuff hasn't always been available. Um, I mean, yeah. Did you, did you guys ever like, okay, so <laughs> when we were kids, we used to ride our bicycles through the woods in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Because inevitably, someone had a porn mag that they would drop in the woods. <laughs> As you do. certain parts. Right, hold on. Let's just stop there for a second and think. Like, okay. <laughs> so who is it like 12-year-old kids that take the porn mag out there to look at it so they can... I don't know. But or is it some like 37-year-old like dude with a beer gut and a mustache who's like wanking to a porn mag out in the woods? Like, that's... <laughs> I know, but we, we used to literally try. I mean, this was like an archaeological dig, and we would make like a grid pattern, <laughs> and we would try to find the snippets of the porn mags, and we would inevitably find like little scraps of paper. I mean, we were digging up Nakamati right there in the, in the woods, <laughs> and it was fantastic. And we would get these like little like bits of boob, and be like, "Oh my god, that that totally made this whole three hour excursion worth it." <laughs> and that was our weekends. Uh, it's the simple things, right? I want. To, we need to make America great again. <laughs> Just snippets of porno mags. Of yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. I, th- I think we uh, crucified the, bru- uh, the the Brooks piece. Yeah, or maybe we. This has just been you know one long object lesson of why he's right. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've come to this. Uh, Chris uh, Murphy is, is still filibustering. Oh, I got to turn that on whenever whenever we're done recording here. Yeah, the filibuster's been going on for what was it, like um, nine or ten hours now. Nine ten hours ten now. Hours. Just entered the tenth hour. Yeah. Uh, it, you know it. I, yeah, we need the good old fashioned filibuster like we had uh, with uh, oh I can't remember uh, the state senator Ted Cruz. Uh, no, in Texas, <laughs> what was her name? Chad. Wendy, da- Wendy Davis. Wendy Davis in Texas. Oh, yes. yeah. I mean, I can remember like I was laying in bed watching that on my phone, like trying to not be too loud because my wife was asleep and was like, "Yeah, go," you know, like cheering on a filibuster. Like that's man, uh, that's like Rand, what democracy is all about. Like Rand Paul's when he wanted a, uh, you know, he wanted the Obama administration's, you know, uh, legal reasoning yeah. behind being able to kill a u.s citizen abroad with a drone he that one lasted a long time well and and at least like murphy has help though right which you know she's got a little or he has a little bit of help from other people right doesn't he yeah so he's he's been deferring um questions without yielding much more doable 
Right. It's, it's not like he's, uh, you know, Strom Thurmond up there mm-hmm. reading the, the dictionary or the phone book, as it were. Whatever he's reading. Or Ted Cruz doing uh, <laughs> Dr. Seuss. Oh, wow. What else? Anything else on the on the docket? Speaking of filibusters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's just keep going. Um, yeah. Okay. We have a ton on the, uh, in the show notes, but we're not going to hit it all. Um, <clears throat> all right. I don't know, Chad. Anything you want to hit at the end here? Anything we don't know that we should know? <laughs> uh, where do I start <laughs> no I mean I don't know I guess the one last thing about I guess well I don't know it's back to the Brooks piece well I kind of already said it it's inter- it's interesting to me that uh, I always get skeptical when someone starts pointing at you know the real problem with society is is our morals or our, or our souls or, or some other kind of like ephemeral thing because the other thing you know it feels to me like Brooks, ha- when he has, kind of given up on the Republican Party, right? Or at least on it, its current kind of yeah. presumptive nominee and, and the powers that, that brought him there. And he's he's been, in the last six months, he's been kind of t- trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, and he, I, haven't, I haven't read anything from him saying that, well, maybe this is just kind of you know the logical conclusion of something like, I don't know Walmart or whatever. You know, he he never he he's he doesn't stop to to ask kind of the economic questions. Which, I mean, at least if if you don't you don't have to be super Marxist and say this is you know the only engine that history has, but you can at least say like maybe there's a factor here that I should be thinking about instead of just talking about why aren't we singing Kumbaya more? Yeah. So so I I I think that's I think that's right, and I think too when when someone is pointing to something. Right above ephemeral, whatever inside, right deep inside, who we really are. Um, I think the question should be there, and this is, you know, this would, um, you know, get this from Russ McCutcheon. Um, I think the question should be like that hides something, and what does that hide, and and why does this person want that hidden, right? Uh, and and I and I think you're absolutely right there that what that does is that hides some other move that's going on. Right. So, as you know, don't look behind. Don't look at the man behind the curtain, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. So let's not look at the structures that are creating this. Right. Let's not look at the economics of what what you know has likely led to this. Um, or let's let's not look at the power struggle at play here, which is part of why I'm always talking about. You know, it's always about money and power. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because I think it's important to kind of unmask these things. Uh, and so and so I think that you're right that oftentimes. When someone does that and they're pointing away or something like that, uh, that it is, if not consciously, um, it is still an attempt to mask something else that is just an all too human thing that's going on there. Right. Hmm. But you know, that's that's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> all right, there we go. I I, I do want to say uh, the Southern Baptist today. Uh, put a resolution out about the uh, Confederate flag yeah. and said that mm. oh, yeah. to, uh, disavow that pretty, pretty awesome. And I saw, I saw a video today. So let's, let's talk for a second about Russell Moore, right? Kind of becoming yeah. like somewhat of a conservative hero to a lot of liberal Christians. Yeah. Like, and the I past think six months or so, yeah. I mean, adamantly anti-Trump, um, and which, which is great, I think. Uh, but I saw a video of him today where someone asked him, um, you know, how can you support, how can you say that our country should, you know, be allowing 
basically Muslims to build mosques here. And, you know, this guy's a pastor of a Southern Baptist church, of course, and he just keeps on going. And, and Russell Moore says, you know, there are sometimes we have decisions to make that are really difficult and we've got to, you know, think about it. And, you know, it takes a while to kind of figure out what we think is, is right. This is not one of those. Hmm. Right. And he, and he gave kind of the self-interested um, a government that can do that to them can do that to us. But he said, but beyond being self-interested. Right. Like here is what we're supposed to do is, you know, people that preach the gospel, et cetera, and goes on. Um, and so it's it's nice to see him kind of um, vehemently standing up against a lot of people that um, that a lot of other people are scared to stand up to. So uh, some interesting things happening right now in the Southern Baptist Convention with that and with the uh, the Confederate flag thing um, today. Did, did you see the. Uh you know that they were having a pretty heated race for the next uh, president yeah. of the convention, and uh, uh, there was thoughts that a, a layperson was going to run uh, from the Atlanta area, who's a financial guy, <laughs> and uh, he had a pretty Donald Trump esque <laughs> type type platform, but it was a little more sensible. Um, basically, you know, like combining the the, the uh, missions board with the IMB and doing all all, all sorts of crazy things like doing away with, with Lifeway. Um, and he had a lot of support, but he decided at the last minute not to do it. But I could totally see that happening uh, here in the next, you know, in the next couple of years. Well, this may have something to do with the fact that they've seen their ninth year in a row of membership decline, right? You know, membership decline, baptism decline. Yeah. And the only churches that they're growing in are, are churches that are, are new church starts from previous church, like a, you know, satellite church. Right, and we know basically. how most of those work, right? A new church started basically just brings in people from other churches that are dissatisfied with, you know, they want the new <laughs> the new, new car smell or whatever, new church smell. Yeah, there is such exactly. a thing. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of the cliche a couple of years ago was, oh, look at all those mainline denominations declining and evangelicals aren't. And it's like, actually, it looks like the numbers are. And now we just see, yeah, okay, nine years in a row. Um, and, and I think, you know, more recognizes that I, I i think he it's not just kind of a we want more numbers for him uh but i do think that that's part of what he's recognizing like we, we've got a which hey it's what the republican party did after 2012 with their autopsy and said hey we've got to really change some things or else we're going to be in a world of hurt and then lo and behold they did but they went <laughs> so in the wrong direction Trump. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. right. and and the cooperative baptist fellowship on the uh sbc light side of things uh turns 25 this year uh, so we're uh, we're meeting next week in Greensboro. So they're finally and, old enough to rent a car. Yeah, exactly. We're we're not going to decide anything or really say anything important, but we're going to meet together, and it's going to be very very healthy. And uh, uh, yeah, I hope we I hope we can do a um yeah get you to do a, re- a remote from there. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I'll I'll make it happen, but um I'm sure it'll be very uh, milk toast. Yeah, because you know CBF. <clears throat> Um, yeah, alliance. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> at least, they, at least they say something, you know. Yeah. Like, like the. I don't know. Anyway, we won't go there. Yeah. Um, well, Chad, we really enjoyed you being on. Um, I hope that you'll come back and do it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'd love to. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about Marxism and how it could solve all of this country's economic woes. See, I thought that's where we were going. I mean, we could do hour two here. I'm not opposed. You know, it would to that. be an interesting conversation. You know, to kind of get your take on you know, things like you know proposals that are actually I'm really surprised are actually getting some mainstream uh, attention, like universal basic income and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, so 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 we need to we need to do another show and talk about some of those aspects um, because I imagine you have some interesting things uh, to say about that. And if you don't, then you'll have time to come up with them. No. <laughs> um, so, but seriously, uh, thanks, uh, Chad, for coming on. Um, if you want to, is your Twitter account private? It's not private, is it? No, no, you can follow me. I'm okay, at, good. Um, I'm at CW Gardner. G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Follow him on on the Twitter at CW Gardner. Um, I was, you know, I don't think about it until I go to like share your name, you know, to our thousands and thousands of listeners. And realize <laughs> like you may not want all that, but you should go follow him. Uh, really fantastic stuff there. Um, you can always, of course, follow Sam and I. Sam is at Sam Harrelson. I'm at Thomas Whitley, and you can always find more great podcasts at Thinking.fm. <laughs>